You're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, Book Talk Today family, and welcome back to another episode of the Book Talk Today podcast. My name is Orn, and on today's podcast, we are joined by Andrew Hankinson. Andrew is a writer based out of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in Northern England. He's written for many different publications, including Wired, The New Yorker, and the BBC, and has reported from places such as Haiti, Iraq, and Ukraine. He's written two books, the second of which is our topic of discussion today, don't applaud, either laugh or don't at the Comedy Cellar. We had a interesting conversation regarding the scene and some of the key individuals, both the owner and comedians based out of the Comedy Cellar in New York. We talked about some of the issues regarding comedians and free speech, what comedians can and can't say, and do they have free reign to say whatever they want. It was an interesting discussion about the role of comedy in today's world, and also a discussion around free speech and what you can and can't say and how that might come back and bite you later on down the line. It was a great conversation and one that I'm really looking forward to share with all of you. Thanks again for tuning into this podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, please do subscribe for the podcast. Each week we release a podcast with an author to discuss their book and the ideas and principles inside of them. So whether you're listening to this on YouTube, Spotify or Apple, please do follow and leave a rating as well if you can for the rankings. Without further ado, here is the podcast with Andrew. Enjoy. Andrew, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And this idea of the world of comedy, it's a very new one for me. I haven't read much about it, uh, but I have seen stuff on the news in regards to comedy and freedom of speech and what does it mean for the relationship between what is a comedian, what are they allowed to say, what are they not allowed to say? And I thought your book was an interesting look into the world of comedy and the world surrounding comedy. So I think before we get into some of the topics uh, that you discussed in the book and some topics that I want to discuss, I think it'd be great to just give an introduction into how you became interested in this topic and, and some of the key themes that you, you learned when uh, researching this. I write for magazines, or I used to. I don't really do much of it anymore. But I used to write for magazines. Um, I was always looking for story ideas. Uh, Louis C.K., the comedian, I, I read an article about him, which was in British Esquire, and I thought he was interesting, so I started kind of following along with what he was doing and stuff. And then from following his interviews and also some of the comedians that he talked about, um, I got interested in this comedy club, which is the comedy club that he kind of, it was like his home club, and he always played there called the Comedy Cellar. Um, I just found it quite interesting. I particularly found the owner of it interesting because of the things that he was saying. He was making these arguments for kind of free speech and stuff, and he was doing it in an intelligent way. I found him interesting. And then, so the first thing was I just pitched a, pitched, pitched a, a profile of the club to some magazines, an in-flight magazine, um, commissioned it, British Airways magazine. They said, yeah, go over and... Uh, but they, they, they said... They said they wanted me to go and do stand-up there. So I did go and do like five minutes of stand-up there, wrote an article about that. <laughs> and from then on, I, just, I kind of just always had an eye on these comedians, this group of comedians and the owner. And I've wrote, written a few articles about them in, in various places. And um, and I just thought, oh, this could make, make quite an interesting book about this kind of, this argument about who decides what people can say and what they can't say, who decides who gets yeah. to have a platform, who doesn't get to have a platform. I, I thought it was like, this setting where Noam Dorman, the owner of this comedy club, was making these really strong principled arguments about free speech, as awkward as it became in certain situations, um, talking just about speech there. Um, he was making these really strong arguments. I just thought that was really interesting. And then watching some of the audience um, members react in a way that they did not want these things to be said on the stage and were quite angry about it. And it's like, how do you decide, you know, how do you decide... The, what is okay and what is not okay. And I thought this particular room, we have a room where we can actually watch this debate happening. I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. So that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, yeah it definitely is. How, how did your five minutes of stand-up go? Was that the first time you ever did stand-up? Yeah, it's the first and only time. I'll never do it again. <laughs> the, um, I, so I really didn't want to do it. 
I've never, it's never appealed to me to do stand up. I'm not a good public speaker or anything. That's why I write as opposed to doing anything else. The, um, but, but they said, they said, when I pitched the idea, they said, well, we'd actually like a celebrity to go over there and do stand up. And I said, no, nah, I really want to write about this place. And they, they were going to give me some money for the idea, you know, and they'd send a celebrity. And I said, no, nah, I really want to write about this place. So I, I don't want your money for the idea and I'll just keep the idea. And, and then they said, well, okay, you go over there and do stand up. So I said, okay. It, and it was kind of, you know, go, go to New York for five days or whatever, stay in nice hotels because it's British Airways so they could get me nice hotels. But it was, <laughs> the whole trip was just ruined by the anxiety of having to do stand up on the more or less the last night, I think it was. Um, because it's just horrific, like getting up there and having to make people laugh. And it was, it wasn't like in one of their big shows. It was like in this show for kind of comedians who are learning and they do like kind of, um, they do some classes there. And at the end of the, the, the semester sort of thing, they do like a performance where all the students, so it was that that I was taking part in. So it was like, there was an expectation that these guys weren't going to be that good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it went, it went, it, that's the ludicrous thing is, um, people laughed and kind of liked it and it was quite good because I worked really hard on writing these jokes. I just can't present them. You know, the, the comedians have got this, yeah, yeah. good comedians have got this amazing thing where they've got this charisma and, and kind of just, there's something, as soon as they get up on the stage, there's something good about them, whereas I don't have that at all. So I just had to write really, really what I thought were good jokes. So that saved me and people, and also people knew I was doing it for a magazine. So they were kind of you know, sympathetic to me and uh, kind to me. Yeah, anyway. they, were po- they were polite to you. They were polite yeah. to you. This guy's just a writer. He's not a comedian. Now I was going to say, what was your approach to writing the jokes? Because obviously you're a writer, but you write for a magazine. But how does it yeah. differ writing a joke to actually writing for a magazine? So at that time, in most of my features anyway, I always tried to kind of have, I tried to have some jokes I wrote lots of short, funny things for like men's magazines and stuff. Like I li- literally, you know, a back page in one of the men's magazines would be like 15 different kind of like, I, I can't even remember what they were, but daft little bits of writing. So I was used to getting, you had to have punchline and then tagline, tagline and all these things to make them funny anyway. So I was used to writing that stuff. So that's what I did. That My, my approach to it was just, you know, um, uh, so when I arrived in America, that's when I started writing some stuff on the plane. But then when I arrived in America for these, this four or five day trip, I was like just making notes in my in my notebook the whole time of like little thing, little observations that I've made when I arrived in New York and, and what I thought would be funny. And then I just gradually reduced, I've, I've kept the best ones and then just reduced them down onto um, little cards. I've just made little cards. And every every day and night, I was just going through these, just reducing them down, reducing them down, so that I I only needed like a word to remind me what the joke was. Um, so yeah, yeah. and that's what I did. And, and it, it's 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 like, it, it was more like writing if you were writing funny stuff for a television program or something like that. You know, that's what I was doing. I wasn't really a I, I could never do stand up where you, where you stand up and actually entertain a room. You know. Did you feel obliged to be controversial in any way or did you feel like obliged to to fit any type of stereotype just so you get like a, a laugh or something or just to be a little controversial? Um, I did. I did. I mean, my my natural inclination is to be a bit shocking, I suppose, anyway. And um, I, I interviewed a comedian called Jim Norton in, in while I was preparing to go and do the stand up as part of the feature I interviewed a comedian called Jim Norton. And he gave me a horrific joke, which so it wasn't my joke, but he. He said, oh, you should say this joke. So I said, okay, I'll try that. And I, I, I wouldn't have done it if I was a real comedian. I wouldn't have taken someone else's joke. But because I was writing for the piece and I included it in the piece, I thought that was reasonable. But it was a horrific joke. Um, and I told it. <laughs> and there was no need to do it because because I, I was telling like funniest jokes and they were fine. And I and it, it went down fine. But I would reckon people must have been in the room just going, what? But the other, and it was a it was a joke about it was a joke about something outrageous, but it also in the room because it wasn't a normal show. When when I got there and I was going to tell some dodgy jokes anyway, and there was a, there was like a family with a baby in there, and I was like, oh my god, what? Am I <laughs> it was like it was really bizarre. So like straight, it, it's one of those things, you know, when people do a best man speech. And then when they turn yeah. up to the wedding and they suddenly go, ooh, I forgot all these people were going to be here. It wasn't just a speech to my yeah. mates. And it felt like that. I was like, ooh, but I did it anyway just because I was going to write about it. So, you know, yeah, it, it was fine. But I, I do have a recording of that 
five minutes of stand-up I did, but I will never put that in the public anymore. <laughs> I, I, I thought I, I thought it was public. No, no, no way. No. I mean, it's, it's all, I, I, you know, it just didn't look good. To be honest, I'm surprised you didn't perhaps include it in the book or as a as an article or a, a piece in of itself saying my five minutes of, of stand-up or something. Well, I, this article that I wrote for British Airways, it was all about that. It was about me learning to do stand-up and then going and doing stand-up and stuff. Oh, okay. So so it ended up being that. And the, and the independent um, syndicated that. So it went in the independent as a feature. So it was on their front. It was on their page one, actually, like flagged up on page one. So that was nice. But um, yeah, I didn't include it in the book because it was so long ago and like, I don't know. I, I didn't want the book to be about me when I was initially doing it. And then obviously that changed. Yeah, but, yeah. But, um, but yeah, so it, it just felt like something different. How did it feel being there and being in that scene then? Because I know you were doing a lot of interviews and you were sort of immersing yourself into, into the world of, of comedy, mm. uh, not only the owners, but the whole, you know, the whole scene itself. So how did it feel being there, being in New York and, and actually, you know, performing, but also being there as well? Yeah, well, that, it was just that first time that I that I performed, and that was the last time I ever did that. If it, it, you know, just generally, I think as a writer, it feels good to be in New York. If when you're when you're in New York and you're working, you're doing some work, and there's a couple of times I've been over there for kind of features and stuff like that, and and then also all through this book, I, I did. I never lived in New York. Um, I always lived in Newcastle, but I did quite a few trips over to New York for this book. I would hang around for a while. Um, it just feels. In New York, you feel a tremendous sense of satisfaction as a writer, like you've made it. Oh, this is me. I've made it. You know, I'm doing well. I'm in New York. So there's that feeling anyway. And then to have it, the comedy seller, the owner, for some reason, I, I kind of get on with him. Um, but for some reason, he just gave me amazing access to him and to his club. And, you know, the comedians didn't necessarily want to speak to me a lot of the time. <laughs> they were very difficult to get <laughs> to talk um, and some of them you know they're just very careful about journalists they don't know what you're going to write they've been burned a lot of times and they don't you know the big thing is the comedians want control over their own story as well they really I found that with so many of them they I mean lots of them were very angry about the book um, or quite a few of them were very angry about the book and I'm sure more were that I never heard about they they want control over their story they want control over how they are presented um, so that was difficult, but but getting getting being in New York, writing about a New York club, and um, having this tremendous access to this club, and being able to speak to the owner of the club, um, very candidly, was was tremendous. It was just like, oh no, I've got something here. I've got a story, and I've got a way in, and mm. um, yeah, and it, it felt like something that I wasn't sure why New York writers weren't covering it so much in the way that I thought it should be covered. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where where you're immersed in it every single day, it doesn't seem too, I don't know, appealing as much as if it's someone looking from the outside in. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It was, it was a total, this book felt like something an outsider would write. Uh, yeah, exactly. You, you parachute in every so often, have a look around, see what's happening. And you can spot the story much better than if you're there every day. You just miss the stories, I think, yeah. How did you did you just approach the owner and 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 say to him, look, I just want to do a, a, a look at your uh, comedy, the comedy seller and and your and your business, and just have a look to see how it runs? Like, how did you pitch it to him? Well, so the very first time I'd been in touch with him was back in like 2012, I think, when I wrote that piece for the Independent, and I got in touch with him, and that was a piece for British Airways in Flight Magazine. So you know, that's just good publicity. You would have thought it's not like I'm going to write something shock. Like, terribly controversial for British Airways in-flight magazine, um, which was a great magazine with great staff and stuff. But, you know, it, it, it's kind of... So it was on safe ground there, I think. I wrote that, and then and then I wrote a couple of pieces about him and a couple of pieces about the other some of the comedians and stuff. And some of it, I think, people weren't so happy about. I wrote a piece um, for the FT Weekend magazine about him. And the... I think I just gradually got to know him over time. He knew sometimes I wrote stuff that he didn't like. Um, so he knew that was a, a risk, but he also knew that I, I kind of liked the comedy seller. I was very interested in the comedy seller. So I think he, mm -hmm. I did ask him about this. I said, and I nearly put it in the book 
And I kind of think I feel like I should have done. But I said, why, why on earth are you like giving me this access and talking to me like this? Because I could just burn you, you know. And and uh, and he said, oh, it's, you know, I know that you you like the club, so it's like you know. He said, what could go wrong? <laughs> I, thought, I thought a lot of things could go wrong. <laughs> you know, there's very easily I could write stuff that he hated, um, and I did write one piece that he hated. Um, so it's like for an article. So it's like, but he, but regardless of that, he carried on giving me access, even when I've written stuff that he didn't like. So I, I thought that was fair on, you know. He seemed like the type of guy, though, and I know part of the book and, and a big part of the book is his viewpoint on freedom of speech and how he goes about choosing guests. And mm. even if a guest is controversial and they have said something controversial and he, and he receives letters, he's very open to be like, we don't have a look at, you know, what they say before they go on. And I'm not going to say anything if they say anything controversial, because that stands against my principles. So he seems like a very principled guy towards how he runs the comedy cellar and, and for comedy in general. Yeah, I think that's, so this owner gnome Dorman, that is, that is his thing, principle. I think that's why he gets so frustrated. You know, he, he has a podcast now and, um, and, and, when, when he's talking on that or when he's talking to the comedians in the club and stuff, it's all based on principle and he gets frustrated that more people don't base their decisions on principle these days. It seems to be much more like, you know, oh, but this, you know, my side is doing this, so it's okay. And that side is doing that. So that's bad and vice versa. Um, and he, his whole thing is principle. This is a principle. So even when it's difficult, I still want to stick to that principle and he'll argue all through it. And, and there is a, a um, there is a rationalism that comes in at times with him. You know, I'm sure there are lines that he would draw about who he would allow in. Is you know, the, the obvious example is like Adolf Hitler. Would he let Adolf Hitler come into his because he's got this comedy club and he's got this restaurant upstairs? Would he let Adolf Hitler come into um, eat in the restaurant? You know, and he would have an interesting debate about and he's, um, he's Jewish. Um, he would have an interesting debate about that whether he would allow him in or not you know what i mean because he has this principle which is i'm not going to start saying you're allowed in you're not allowed in because then it all becomes about his um his feelings about that person and, and he doesn't want to be the person who's you know stopping someone from entering a restaurant or so on yeah it's one of it's one of those things as well once you stop one person from coming in where does it stop exactly well this is the thing like with twitter so this person's banned from twitter this person's not banned from twitter well, now Twitter has to make that decision again and again and again about who they're going to ban and who they're not going to ban. And, and I can see why, you know, why you'd want to ban certain people. But once you've gone down that route, well, it's, it becomes very difficult to keep on making that decision and keep justifying the decisions that you're making. And is that one of the things he's very apprehensive to do? Because once you sort of stop one comedian from coming in, all comedians think, well, why should I go there if I can't say X or, or be honest as a comedian? Yeah, exactly. So he's when comedian, so there's some stuff in the book there where, where kind of um, audience members complain to to him or, or the or the booker or someone at the club about who's on stage and the jokes that this comedian is making on stage. Um and his reply to them, and I've also got his replies to some of these people in there, or I've, I talk to him in the conversations, or I talk to the audience members about it. But his response is, if I stop that comedian from going on stage and making that joke, then then I have adopted the role of the censor, and I decide, you know, who can say what and who can't say what. And at that point, it all becomes about his sensibility and what he thinks is funny and what he thinks is funny is, is not funny. And he wants it to be an audience response. If the audience is laughing, then that's okay. If the audience isn't laughing, then that's not okay. And that's how he books the club. Of course, if someone was going up there and saying, you know, wildly anti-Semitic stuff or Islamophobic stuff, and the audience was laughing their heads off, I'm sure he might start to think, I don't want that person on my stage, really. But I haven't seen that happen yet, so... It's interesting from what I've heard from comedians, I don't know any comedians personally, but from what I've heard, it's all about the intent of the joke. Because sometimes you know when a joke comes from a comedic place and you can tell that the comedian is saying it in such a way that is, it's making light of a difficult situation, but doing it in a humorous way. Whereas you can tell when someone's doing it from a very malicious or is intent, his, his or her intent is just to be malicious and, and to be mean. Well... <laughs> 
this all this all stuff is, is it feels very generational, doesn't it? Because yeah, for me, it was always about the intent. And comedians will say, comedians, particularly in a small club like this, this club is very famous now, and it's been on television and things like this, and talked about it in a lot of places and interviews and stuff. But fifteen years ago or so, it was called a workout room because that's where comedians went to work out their material. A lot of comedians. The, the 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 more famous comedians, and that's still where a lot of the comedians who are super famous go to work out material, like Louis C.K., Amy Schumer, Chris Rock, people like this, Dave Chappelle. They go to the comedy cellar and work out the material. And in working it out, sometimes you're going to get it wrong, and so that's you know the intention was still to make people laugh, but they slightly got it wrong, and maybe people didn't laugh. But if the intention was there to make people laugh, then to me, that joke is that joke is all right. You know what I mean? Nothing's off limits if someone was trying to get a laugh. If someone's being, well, Stuart Lee talks about this in the intro. Um, actually, sometimes jokes are intended to harm as well. You know, it might not just be yeah. to make people laugh. It might be to make a point. It might be to kind of hurt someone else's feelings and stuff like that. But this is all part of it. And so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, if someone's going up there on stage and making people laugh, then it's, 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 you know, it, that, that's, that's, that's the main, um, criteria. But the, um, as you, even as I'm saying that though, I'm thinking about certain comedians who say things, you know, like the P word and stuff. So I talk about that as well, like Bernard Manning and things yeah, like yeah. this. So it's like, you know, and I, and that's, that's my whole, worry about when I, as soon as I started writing this book I was like would I have defended Bernard Manning going on stage and saying that stuff and and I, I don't know whether I would have done or not and I'm certainly pleased if he's not in somewhere like the comedy cellar telling jokes like that you know so so it's it's a diff, it's, it's really tricky and 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 I think when you get into trouble is when you make absolute um rules on this sort of stuff you have to have give some leeway you know what I mean and you have a point of principle and then you know when it gets to the very tricky cases, then you, you start having to think a little harder. Yeah. It's also the case as someone who's a writer like yourself, you don't want to be saying to another person or someone who is a, com a, com a comedian or someone who creates content and, and tries to get elicit a reaction, what they should say and what they shouldn't say, because then it kind of goes against the ideal of what it is that you do as well. So it becomes a judgment instead of a, I don't know, a critique. Well, I mean, that was the whole, I guess, I guess that was, that was probably actually, I think I might have this in the book, I can't remember. But I think that was actually why I started writing the book, because of the way people were reacting to these comedians at the Comedy Cellar and trying to get them to not be allowed on stage anymore, or get them to stop saying the jokes that people didn't like. And I thought, I'm a writer, and I, I kind of, I, I want to write what I want to write, you know, and I know what kind of person I am, and I know my intentions, and I don't think I've ever written anything that was um, intended to, uh, you know, divide people or, or was bigoted or anything like that. And, and, and the, you know, I don't want anyone to stop me from saying something because of a particular word I've used or because, you know, they've misunderstood what I've, I've, I've written, you know? So, yeah, I think it, it's, as a writer, you kind of feel very defensive of comedians as well. I think. Yeah. I think it's also this idea that you want people to say what they want to say so that you give them the space to voice their true opinions. Because as soon as you tell someone that they can't say anything or you ban them at all, and you mm. see this with social media companies, you've automatically given the person who's banned all the power because you say to them, well, you're not giving me a chance to say what I actually mean. And that is perhaps the most important thing of all. Yeah. You, 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 I, I kind of think so. You did, so I was doing... Um, I've been doing a PhD on um, creative writing, creative nonfiction. And for that, I was watching, I, I went and attended and, and I've been writing about these marches that were happening in Sunderland. And a lot of these people in these marches were Tommy Robinson supporters. And Tommy Robinson was up there sometimes um, on these marches as well, which were, it was a very, a very complicated situation, which I won't go into, but there were these marches happening. And so I read his book when I was doing this PhD um, and he talks about in his book how when he started getting on the news and getting interviewed and getting a platform, as we say now, um, his support skyrocketed, you know, and he, he, he's like, 
the, the organization that he had, the, the EDL, support for that skyrocketed when he started getting mainstream coverage. And when he was on Twitter, he has a huge following, you know. And when he got taken off Twitter, I think that damaged his ability to operate enormously. So when I kind of make the argument for free speech that probably Twitter shouldn't be banning people and stuff like that, I always have in my mind that actually, on the other hand, Tommy Robinson was hugely enabled by being allowed to have a platform on social media and by it being interviewed on, on, on mainstream media and stuff like that. So it's... so. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> and and then you have to decide. Well, you know, is the is the cure worse than the, you know, are we going to end up in a worse place if we start banning people? Or are we going to end up in a better place? And that that's and and, and yeah, I, I guess my feeling is that we'll probably end up a lot in a much worse place if we ban people and stop people from being able to yeah. speak. It, it's, I think it's a. It's a- it's a worse of two evils, isn't it? Yes, exactly. It's like which yeah. evil, which 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 evil do you choose? Yeah. The one where you ban people, or the one that you let people speak? Yeah, and, and and obviously as a writer, and you know, with many examples, particularly over the last hundred years or so, the you, you know, you think about when people are stopped from saying what they want to say, and you stop writers from saying things, and you stop people on stages from saying what they want to say. That's not an indication of a good society or a society heading in a good direction. You know, I would have thought. No. Yeah. That's a slippery slope right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a slippery, slippery so, slope. So that's why my, my, my instinct, and with the instinct with this book, and, the, and it was a real you know, passion with this book, was you've got to defend that. You've got to allow people to go on stage. And then if people don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. But you have to give people the, the, the ability to go on stage and say what they want within a room of people who have chosen to go and see that. You know, that, That's the point. See, that's why I thought you wouldn't have any comedians that would be against you writing the book so it seemed strange to me when you said that comedians some comedians weren't happy with you writing the book even though i would have thought you're actually out there to defend them yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no it isn't it wasn't about it wasn't about the argument of the book that they don't like they don't you know one of them i was in new york a, a few weeks ago one of the comedians um he, he said i made him sound like a whiny bitch <laughs> and he was, and he, was having, he, he was having a big go at me like I was in the comedy cellar because I went to see a show and someone I, I knew who he was so I didn't kind of flag myself up but someone I was with who who worked at the comedy cellar I said oh you should meet Andrew he wrote the book about this place and I was like oh god here we go and the guy started going off a little bit and and I just kind of like you know listened to him have his little rant and he was really cross but I just thought and he said, "He said next time you write a book about it, get it right." And I thought, "You've just complained for two minutes about in, in a book where you come across pretty well, to be honest." Um, so I'm not sure I did get it wrong. You know, <laughs> it was like that. It, it was just it was it was it was like I was saying earlier. It was all to do with control over their own image and their own words. That's what they were really worried about. And there was another one who got really annoyed, more 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 justifiably, I think, who got quite annoyed. Um, and he he has a radio show, so he was. I think it went on for a few days where he kept talking about this book during his radio show quite angrily um, because he didn't like the, 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 one of the, one of the customers kind of, you know, implied that he was a bigot and, and I included that in there. And so he didn't like that, but, and I understand, understood that because it's like, it could, you know, nobody wants to be portrayed as that kind of thing but his jokes were pretty out there and and I thought it was quite clear from the book that that was just the audience members point of view and I didn't necessarily agree with that and and I think the stuff that I wrote in the book didn't agree with that and 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 I specifically said you know I think the comedians were just trying to be funny when they went on stage so in the book Mm. but the um so that was the sort of stuff that they got annoyed about you know do you get the indication from speaking to a lot of these comedians in the and the scene itself that comedians feel like they can say whatever they want and they're above the line um, or that they, they are above everyone else in society because they have this position and they feel like they can say what they want to say. The, the, the comedians, no, I, I think the comedians are generally pro-free speech across society and for everyone. Um, I think the, the problem that the comedians have is they are used to overwhelmingly like positive coverage over the past decade or so where um 
people write about people who write about the comedy industry and comedians are just going and doing an interview, which then goes in like Time Out magazine or or you know some 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 glossy kind of publication or like in the newspaper on the website, and it's just you know it's generally on their side a bit of publicity. It's PR basically, and they're not used to being written about in a way which is um, more newsy, uh, you know. And I think that's what and there is some so there is at least I know one. Um, journalist in America who's trying to change that and he's he's trying to write about them as an industry and and hold them to count as an industry and so through all through COVID and stuff if they were doing shows that he thought like contravened the rules he he was writing about it and stuff and that really annoyed a lot of them and and he was like but look you you're putting this stuff out there so I'm gonna you know I'm gonna write about you as an industry and treat you like anyone does any other industry you know and also and he does the same with their work as well so when they're telling jokes on stage or when they're Put you know, putting stuff out on podcasts and stuff. He like he responds to that with you know by scrutinizing it and then you know having his response to it. Um, and I think that they're not used to that as well. So I, I think with my book as well, I think they had a particular idea about what a book about the comedy seller was going to be, and they thought it was going to be a book which is you know, the comedy seller is amazing. It's such a legendary place. Um, you know, ooh, there was some controversy, but it's all turned out good in the end. And that wasn't, the, I, it wasn't, I'm not interested in writing a book like that. This book was about, these are really thorny issues. Let's get into them and there might not be any answers. Um, and, and you guys are kind of, I'm, I'm kind of slightly using the comedians to have these debates, but mainly with the owner. And he was fine with what I was doing. Um, but I think they wanted it to be, the comedy cell is a legendary place. And we are part of that story now because we perform here. Some of them, um, and that wasn't what I was writing. Some of them were, you know, very much wanted to, to tackle some of the controversies, like Louis C.K. and stuff like that. Um, but yes, some of them, I think, had a particular idea about what a book about a comedy club was going to be, and it was different to their. Idea. Do you think it was those that perhaps on the ascension that felt very strongly about not having their image torn? Because I think that with comedians now, it's very much like comedy. Like, what's the ascension of the comedy? You know, from comedy, you go to TV or you, then you go to movies. So if yeah. anyone poses a roadblock in that, in that, in that line of, of ascension, then they want to, you know, shut you up. Yeah. The, 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 um, I mean, nobody's trying to shut me up. They, they, you know, nobody said, oh, don't write this book or anything like that. So and the people who I interviewed, I'm grateful to because they gave their time to interview. It's just they, the book probably wasn't what they expected. But yeah, that, that's the big, that's, that's the really big thing in the comedy industry, I think, is like, you're out there, you're telling all these jokes at clubs, and you're doing lots of podcasting, because they do so many podcasts now, and there's so much material out there, um, and they were younger when they did some of it, they weren't successful when they did some of it, and then they're getting to the point where they're getting stuff on American television channels and things like Netflix and stuff like that. And then they want to get into films and they want to be selling out theatres and they want to be moving even some of the performance stadiums, you know. So there's all that. But that all involves being picked out by industry people, you know, saying, yes, you can be it. You can't be it. You can be it. You can't be it. And it's they're, they're very, very hot. The, the comedians are very, very hot on ensuring that nothing jeopardizes them because all it takes now is is somebody who's about to pick them for a netflix special does a quick google and finds some controversy from three years ago where they said something and it's you know it might not be portrayed particularly fairly and that's going to cost them huge opportunities so i've got great sympathy for them with that which is why i was trying to be so careful with my book because it's like you know i don't want my book to cost you um opportunity unless you deserve it but nobody did seem to deserve it it's a you know if they hadn't already lost those opportunities, that was part of the story. So, like for example, Louis C.K. But um, yeah, but yeah, it was it was basically. I think some of them were very very worried about losing opportunities, and um, it, it, when when so you see every so often, like there's a couple of comedians I know who are, who get mentioned in the book. Um, a rumor went around the internet, and so they just pulled down all of their Patreon podcasts and videos and everything you know because they didn't want people trawling through it to look for things that they had said so they just pulled it all down and you see this you know fairly regularly where people just you know Shane Gillis he was a comedian he's not in the book but he performs at the comedy cellar now 
and he was a comedian who used to do loads of podcasts and he was going to be a new um he was going to be on the saturday night live cast or i don't know a writer on it or something he was going to join saturday night live and uh and then a, a, a journalist went and went through all his stuff um and found out this bit where he, he it kind of sounded you know he was he was he was kind of derogatory towards Chinese people, I think, or he put on accents or something like that. Um, and so he lost that. He got ditched from Saturday Night Live, you know. And that's the sort of thing that's mm-hmm. going to hang over a person for the rest of their life where they could have had this superstar status and then they lost it. And he's, I think he's doing well now, but but it's like, you know, that's, that's what they're all cautious about. It's like, if, if I'm going to have a big opportunity, what is in my past that's going to cost me that opportunity? And so, yeah. I was trying to be careful with my book. I didn't want to shy away from any subjects, but I also wanted to be fair with them. And I think you could do that in a book. You can be like, look, you said this controversial thing. Let's have a discussion about it. Oh, by the way, it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. That's totally fine. Whereas once it's on the internet, that's a different ball game, I think, because things get misrepresented and taken out of context and stuff. Are a lot of comedians very wary of new media then putting out their own type of media and then what people can say and can't say? Because I would have thought with the rise of podcasts and podcasting, they would be very careful. But I guess it also presents an opportunity for them as well to gain a new audience. And I think I think one comedian you mentioned in the book was Andrew Schultz, who used social media very well, you know, last year to gain a following. And now he's, you know, selling out um, theatres all over the country in, in the US. So are comedians scared to to use that type of new media or do you see most of them embracing it no i, I see them all embracing it they've all you know most of the comedians that seem to be doing well uh, uh, have got podcasts go on podcasts have been on podcasts for many years now um they're also you know some of them have, couldn't get deals for their special the special the special just in case anyone listening is like an hour-long performance that's recorded we used to call it a special because they were kind of rare but now <laughs> they've all got them all the time everyone so they, they, yeah so but some of them couldn't get their specials some of the younger guys couldn't get their specials on netflix or hbo or some of those places so they just put them on youtube you know and they get loads of clicks for that and it, and it kind of you know and that gives them some money but it also shows the industry that actually they've got a following and they're worth investing in so the, i think they all embrace new media but i think initially when they started doing podcasts, certainly when I started listening to them, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, they were not very careful about what they were saying. And I think definitely over the last three or four years, you, you can hear all the hesitations as they're speaking on podcasts. You hear them stopping themselves. You hear when one of the most more controversial comedians says something, a lot of them will drop out of the conversation or they don't want to be involved in it because they're, they're all so hyper aware that that video, but a lot of them are filmed now as well, the podcasts, that that clip could be shown, take, you know, it could be clipped and it could be put on the internet. And they're, if they're there laughing about an off color joke, then that could cost them a lot. So I think they're all hyper aware. As soon as there's something which could cause them trouble, they drop out of that conversation. And there's some who have, you know, gone more in that Andrew Schultz direction, which is, look, I'm going to say what I want, you know. Um, uh, uh, but that's a gamble, you know. That's like, I'm going to have to do it for myself because the industry isn't going to be with me for a bit. And the industry then, I think, you know, Netflix was then on with Andrew Schultz, but I think for a while it was a risk. Um, so, uh, you know, it's that it's it's that decision, isn't it? It's like, do I do, I do it full full hearted or do I hang back and hope that the industry is going to pick me at some point. It's one of those things that they're always going to pick you when you're successful because they've always got money to make. Yeah. Well, as long as you've not said anything too outrageous and Andrew Schultz, like (laughs) some people would say some of the stuff he said is, you know, totally outrageous and he should not have the same as Dave Chappelle. Oh, he should not have a a special on Netflix, you know, but yeah, he's, they, they've been careful not to say anything that's too cancelable. I think, um, uh, but who who gets to define that? I think that's no. the the underlying thread throughout your whole book is who gets to define what is cancelable, what is outrageous, what isn't outrageous? Because I yeah. could listen to a joke and and find it absolutely hilarious, and you could listen to the same one and and be you know tweeting you know thirty tweets <laughs> like that lady was in the book that you put. I can't remember her name, but she like yeah. put so many tweets out about this this one joke yeah. that someone made. So. Like who gets to decide, and and did you perhaps had conversations about that topic? 
with comedians and with Noam as well? I, I had, I mean, there's some conversations with Noam in there in the book, you know, who gets to decide. And then I think I've got some stuff in there with, with comedians where we, t- we talk about it a little bit. The, um, who, I mean, in the comedy club, it's basically the comedy, the owner of the comedy club, isn't it? He decides who's going to go on that stage and who's not. And if someone says something that they don't like, then they can stop booking him or her. Um, that's the way that the comedy world works. Outside in the wider world, who gets to decide? Well, the the problem is that it's not, you know, it's it's. We are all we are all very aware now. If if we say certain things in public, for example on Twitter, the reaction that it might have, so we just stop ourselves from saying them. Um, uh, 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 so it's basically who decides what you can and can't say. Well, it's been the the most um, the most heated and hysterical people. I think have decided slightly. You know, uh, you know. That whole thing that you talk about intent, it's like, so now, you know, if you said something with the correct intention, you could be making an anti-racist argument. Um, but then if you used a particular word, you would be, you know, in a lot of trouble. And and it, and that kind of trouble is very, very stressful and can cost you an awful lot, um, yeah. even if your intention was the right intention. So who who decides, you know, what people can and can't say? Well, it, it, it was the... It was the it was the most easily offended and, and um, it was the, you know, and, and then some people, lots of people will make the argument to me, you know, like, oh, you can still say what you like. Um, it, yeah, you can. And and people say, well, and there's just, you know, it's, it, it, what, what do they say? It's not cancel culture, it's consequences culture. Um, 100%. Yeah, but the, 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 like, I don't know, like, I, I think the consequences uh uh too severe um and i think people are misrepresented and i think um i think i i think it has stopped people from saying what they want to say and not that people want to say like you know that's the other thing so well what did you want to say and it's like well nothing nothing bad i just want to talk about this stuff you know and 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 you know even even saying something like that makes me sound like some kind of fool but but hopefully people understand what I mean, which is, which is just this, this, this worry that um, at any point you might be filmed, things that you say might be, you know, plucked and put on the internet and cause you a lot of problems. Like that John Ronson book, you know. Yeah. Like, and I think another thing that you said in the book, and I can't remember who said this in the book, but it, it said that something along the lines of like the best comedians are, uh, philosophical contrarians but at the moment they feel like they can't say what they want because they're too scared to to voice their their true opinions and I thought it was interesting because I see comedians as like medieval jokers so they go to the court and they make these jokes and they might make a you know slip of the tongue and make a joke about the king and they're towing the fine line between having like, getting the king or the queen to laugh or getting their head chopped off yeah. like I, I that's where I see comedians like those those royal jesters. I don't mm. know whether they see themselves as that way, but uh, me as someone who observes them, sees them as towing that line. Yeah. So I think that is, I think that is what they're doing. And so in order to tow that line, sometimes you go over, over it. So, but the consequences used to be, so somebody was doing a set in a club or in a theater. Um, the consequence used to be they would get booed in that room. Or, or there would be mm. silence in that room, or someone would just shout something in that room. But now the consequence can be, which Stuart Lee talks about in the intro, is someone films that and then puts it on the internet. And then that person, you know, might not get the TV deal that they were hoping for, or they might not get invited on a panel show that they were hoping for, or that maybe some theatres um, aren't going to hire them anymore. Um, and it's the same with, you know, um, if they did, if they go on television and they say something, two thousand and five, they said something on TV. That it used to be, it used to disappear, but now it's around forever, and it gets brought back up in a time when it wasn't said, and it can cause them consequences mm. then as well. And um, and also the consequences that used to be, so say protests outside the BBC, for example, which happened to Stuart Lee, people phoning up, death threats and stuff like that. 
but but that was a kind of um you, you could confront that but now it, it spreads all over the internet and you can't confront every single person you can't argue against every single person so your reputation is just tarnished online by people saying you know he said this joke therefore he is a something and mm-hmm. and you know some kind of a bigot and and it kind of it's um yeah i, I just think it, that that whole system is set up to stop people from saying things so i think you'll find like younger comedians now will like make sure that they don't say some of the jokes that they would have otherwise have said because they know that it'll because they've learned now that it'll exist forever and it could be brought up in the future and it could cost them opportunities so and you might say well that's good because we don't want people saying this sort of stuff but i i kind of really like take stuart lee um jerry springer's jerry springer the opera you know it's really good powerful stuff but people wanted that cancelled back then and it's like and you want provocative stuff you don't want bigoted stuff you want provocative stuff um and 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 that can come in all different forms but people are just going to shy away from it because they because it's too risky it's it's not worth the hassle if you if you want a nice career in comedy just don't say anything bad don't say anything that's going to get you in trouble but don't you think that that that's not comedy then because from <laughs> what it? you've just said, <laughs> then what, what what will be the state of comedy in 5, 10, 20 years if people well, aren't allowed to say what they want to say? Well, it is comedy. It's just not comedy I'm particularly interested in. Like, you know, the, the, um, <laughs> like but that's, that, that is the thing. Like, this, this, this happens in, in, in entertainment as well though I think like so in the, I remember I was born in 1980 and in the 1980s and early 90s I found oh god like radio DJs were so boring and so nice and so you know just cheesy and then in in the in the mid 90s it changed and suddenly you had the radio DJs and TV presenters and stuff who were doing like you know they just seemed a bit more real and authentic and you would like felt like you were seeing behind the scenes, but even if it was just a presentation that they wanted to give you. And that was exciting. Um, and now it feels like that, that's gone back to being like, you know, just kind of careful and nice. I listen to Radio 1 sometimes now because of my kids and it's like, oh, really, I don't find it tricky. <laughs> and, you know, but and I, I feel like the same thing is kind of happening with comedy a bit or has happened with comedy a bit where... Um, a lot of the, um, a lot of people, quite, quite reasonably, I don't blame them, are being very, and it's happening in publishing as well, are being very, very careful about what they say and, and what might be in their back catalogue. You know, so I, with comedy, you know, I, I don't like a lot of comedy. I'm very specific about the comedians that I like. Um, I, I, otherwise, I just sit there and, you know, being a being in a comedy club watching someone that I don't find funny at all, and nobody wants that because it's awkward for me and it's awkward for them. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a massive follower of comedy at the moment because, you know, uh, I mean, the last time I watched something, I think, was my uncle told me to watch the stand-up special that Eddie Murphy did um, where he wrote, he wore the leather tracksuit. I'm just trying to remember what the name of it was now. It's really famous. Raw? But I, I, what, delirious? Uh, sorry? Raw delirious, delirious? That was the one. Yeah. I think it was Delirious. Yeah. And I thought, holy crap, you can't say that now. <laughs> <laughs> I said, imagine if he came out with a leather tracksuit in 2022 yeah. and started saying all those things. Yeah. Well, I think some of the stuff that Eddie Murphy said, like, you know, about uh, gay gay men that he was saying back then, yeah. which I think it was, you know, it was upsetting for people at the time. And I think he might have gotten some bother for it at the time. Mm. Um, you know, so that, I mean, that's a perfectly good example of like, well, should you, should you said this sort of stuff you know what I mean was it divisive was it you know did that cause people grief in their in their in their life did it kind of like say that saying this word is acceptable talking about gay men is acceptable like this so that's a that's a, that's a really interesting debate that's exactly the sort of thing that I wanted to get into in in the book which I hopefully did because it's it's not clear cut to me it is that those two specials are amazingly funny um but you know if if, if you were if you were doing it now would you say well just don't don't do those jokes. I, I think Eddie Murphy would feel the same, you know, you just, you know, wouldn't do those, might do those, would do those, you know. Um, the, the interesting thing as well is look at the career he had afterwards. He became the donkey in Shrek. 
I mean, he definitely yeah. become a donkey in Shrek. <laughs> he made one of the most popular cartoons I think ever created. I don't know how much it is in box office, but I mean, we only watched it a couple of weeks ago, you know, over Christmas. So, mm. I mean, there is no chance if someone came out like Eddie Murphy did back then now that they would be anywhere close to as successful as he was. Yeah, so that, that that's that's to me that's the shame is that so he's he's still got a successful career, but he made his he did he said things when he was younger which he wouldn't say now. He's learned, you know, and it's like and 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 because he was became hugely successful, he kind of got away with it. So my worry is that do we are we forgiving enough of people when they well we I think we're clearly not forgiving of people um, when they've said stuff in their past, you know. Um, do we do we give them a route out of it, or or do we just you know say horrible things about them on the internet and watch their life fall to bits? Mm-hmm. You know, um, every all of this it all comes back to me to the, the John Ronson boot. You know, you've been so you've been publicly shamed because that's 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 what it's, it's to me. I just feel the consequences for errors and sometimes errors in the past are far too severe. You think the consequences are too high for someone who gets called out in public and shamed? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, with their life, their life falling apart, you know, right in front of them. Yeah, I mean, even even just getting into a small heated exchange on Twitter is stressful and can, you know, it makes makes you flush and makes ruins your day and stuff like that. So to have, you know, you know, people around the world saying horrible things about you, and then knowing that your employers are going to be doing something about it that you know future employers are going to be doing something about it you know it's it, i mean this happened with noam dorman the owner of the comedy seller in the book because louis ck had uh, the new york times had, had written a story about what he'd been doing and he'd written you know he admitted that he that they were correct that he had been doing this stuff and um and then noam allowed him to go back on the stage afterwards so he noam got loads of flack for that and, you know, he was talking about his stomach acid going all the time and stuff and how stressful it was trying to deal with that. Um, I, I, so that's, you know, I found that really interesting. Like someone who is under the global spotlight where literally like, you know, New York Times, BBC, Hollywood Reporter, you know, or The Guardian, all these places around the world were writing about his club and his decision. And, you know, and then all these people, and that's kind of reasonable because that's, you know, most of those things are written by reasonable people and edited by reasonable people. Um, but then you get all the people who are then on social media who jump on it and say horrible things and, you know, someone threatening to firebomb his club and stuff like this. And you're like, come on, guys. You know, they, they, you can argue against the decision and you can think horrible thoughts about him, but you don't need to be putting all this stuff written in the public, you know? Mm. I'm, I'm talking about social media my, there. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I know you are. And yeah. this is me with my my point of view on, on this subject. It's I feel like it's they have used the ability to, um, whether you call it cancel culture or consequence culture, they have used the current ecosystem as an excuse to go after people because they're, they hold a certain status or certain position in society and perhaps they just want to see the world or someone who is successful taken down. Um, because they feel like they can like I I don't know how many people approach it from a good-hearted you know this has offended me sort of please rethink it or how many people just come from it I just want to take you down because I feel like I can because you said this yeah I mean and I'm always kind of careful to separate that when if we're talking about that then now separate it from what Louis CK did because Louis CK actually did something and he admitted to it yeah. so we know he did it um so and and, and that was to do with um I always use the term that New York Times used just for legal reasons, but sexual misconduct because um, they've got good lawyers. <laughs> you, want to, uh, you, want, you want to be as careful as possible, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I separate. So that, that discussion is kind of separate to that one. But yeah, the, mm. the, do people want, just want to t- bring people down? Yeah, of course they do. That's, that's part of human nature, isn't it? When someone's successful, if you can, you know... It, lots of people want to pull people down a little bit yeah and 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 then also there's a righteousness that comes along and then there's also a mob mentality that comes along um and yeah on the other hand i'm too soft and so so to me i'd be you know there'd be 
anytime someone does something wrong in life, to me, it would be like, you did something wrong. Are you sorry? And they'd go, yeah, I'm sorry. And I'd go, okay, then go on, carry on. You know, it, it, yeah. I'm exaggerating, but that, I, like, when I, actually, sometimes I'm in court for um, crimes as a journalist, you know, and I'm, I'm not a defendant. I'm there in the press box. The, um, and I always just feel sorry for the people who are getting sentenced and stuff, you know, and I find it very difficult to look people in the eyes, the defendants as they're being sentenced and stuff. And these are people who, you know, some people have killed people and things like this, done terrible stuff. Mm. But I feel it, I feel it, I find it very difficult watching people being punished because it just feels so like they have no control at that point. And, and even if it is justified, it feels cruel in some way. So that, that's mm. always my feeling when I go into these things. So I admit that I'm probably too soft and probably, you know, would not be a good um, judge in the in the in the, <laughs> in the in the in the in the social media justice world. But, yeah. yeah, probably not. I I wouldn't be as well, to be fair, because yeah. well, I I don't I don't partake in anything like that. I just think it's. Part, I mean, I, I, to call it a waste of time, I think is a bit is a bit wrong because I don't think it's a waste of time. I think that there are better uses or there's better places that that can be changed rather mm. than on social media. You yeah. know, I'm all for having discussions. That's why I love having a podcast and I love, you know, long form discussions because I think you can work things out, you know. But, you know, I grew up in the UK where, you know, being Muslim and being ethnic, you know, you, know, you get things said to you, but at the end of the day, you know, you have a bit of a laugh about it and you move on. No one does it. To be honest, no one's done it out of malice to me. But mm. at the end of the day, you know, it's one of those things that the more you react to it, the worse that someone pokes you. That's what I've found. You know, if you just laugh it off, yeah. it usually usually just subsides. Same. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> the, the, like, I mean, it's some of the stuff I was doing for that PhD, they were really... So, some, I mean, there was you know Tommy Robinson supporters, but the, you know there was, there was some people got beaten up and things like this, and and it, it and some of the stuff. I don't know. I think Islamophobia is a big problem, but the the that we do need to figure out and do something about, it, and I think it's only going to be a growing problem. But you know. It's a I conversation for another day, Andrew. It's a conversation for another day. You know, you know what though? It's, it's kind of part of the same conversation because um, the so one of the guys I was writing about in this um, in this PhD, he he went to prison for twenty one. He got sentenced to twenty one months for stirring up racial hatred, and that was because he was making mm. these speeches that he was making in Sunderland. So it's a free speech thing, you know. And I and I was really shocked, and his speeches were not nice and they you know but but the, he wasn't being there was no link from these speeches to to violence at least he wasn't being prosecuted for any speeches that he made which were linked to violence or he, he didn't get found guilty of any speeches that linked to violence but he went to jail for 21 months for making these speeches and i thought wow that's quite something in the uk that or in england that we're that we're doing that sending someone to prison yeah. for making speeches that hadn't led to any violence but what what was he saying? Like, how bad were the speeches? If they weren't inciting violence, were they just against a certain stirring, stirring up racial hatred is the crime, and I think it's a, it's a, you can get sentenced for up to seven years for that. So stirring up racial hatred, it doesn't need to be inciting violence. It's oh wow, stirring up racial hatred. Yeah. And does does that does that make its way onto the internet as well? If you incite that on the internet as well, can you get prosecuted? Yes. Yes. Interesting. Are you worried? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't do anything. I share, I share books online. That's all I talk yeah, I about. I'm very careful about what I say. I'm no, very well, careful. This, you, you know, um, I mean, this was, you remember David, what's his name? David Starkey, that historian who said some stupid stuff, racist stuff. Um, and he was on Darren Grimes' podcast. And, and that he, you know, I think it was the same the, the police were investigating for the same thing, which is stirring up racial hatred. And so you could be the person making the speech, but also if you broadcast or publish it, you could be up on the same crime. It's, oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, definitely. Yeah, I think yeah. that's something that I'm very... Well, I, to be honest, I, I, I try and stay as least controversial as possible, even with the authors <laughs> that I get on and the people that I yeah. speak to, because my thing's not about being controversial. That's not. I, some people like to be controversial for the sake of being controversial. Yeah. 
It's too stressful. That's just, it's too. It's way too stressful. <laughs> it's something that I want to avoid. Unless it's something I want to avoid. If someone was paying me a lot of money to do it, but, <laughs> but no, I think even even with the money, Andrew, the stress. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I I don't think it's worth the stress. No, you know, right. easy life. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and discussing uh, your book. Don't applaud, either laugh or don't at the Comedy Cellar. Book's here. Um, where's the best place that people can find you online or social media, Andrew? Um, <laughs> I don't offer much, but I, I'm on Twitter at, at Andrew Hankinson. Um, and my website is www.andrewhankinson.com. And my book is available at... Um, bookshop or or amazon you might struggle to find it in shops now but um yeah it's online you can buy it perfect thanks so much for coming on andrew no thanks for having me thank you so much for listening to this podcast hopefully you took away some interesting thought points from this podcast regarding comedy and the role that comedy plays in modern day society it was an interesting conversation and one that I was really looking forward to share, actually, because it was quite comedic, <laughs> funny enough, uh, at times uh, during the, the podcast. So you can purchase Andrew's book uh, in the description below and you can also check out his website as well. I've put the link in the description below as well if you want to go check out his other books uh, and potentially buy the book as well. Thank you again for listening to this podcast. Just a reminder, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. Each week we send out a podcast with an author to discuss their book and the ideas and principles inside of them. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and I'll see you in the next one.